thought it would be good to deal with this subject tonight because it sort of complements a little bit of the study, although it's a little different, but uh, in the same field of, or discipline of theology. You talk to just about anybody in the church community on the subject of demons and demon possession, and you're likely to hear a number of opinions, aren't you? Most of it will land somewhere between fascination and fear. Many people make one of two errors in regard to the devil and uh, fallen angels. Those fallen angels who joined him in his rebellion at the beginning of human history as we know it against the authority of Creator God. Uh, one error is to disbelieve in their existence and power. The other error is to become obsessed with them and their power, to sort of find behind every bush or around every corner a demon. I have, over the years, watched a number of well-intentioned pastors and authors, teachers, build their entire ministries around combating the forces of darkness, coming up with insights and even incantations and special prayers on how to break free of spiritual bondage. The problem is we're given very, very little information beyond the Gospels on how exactly to confront a demon. In fact, what we're given is a directive to focus our attention not on the devil, but on our Lord, keeping our eyes fixed on Him, right? Hebrews chapter 12. We're also told to resist the devil by drawing near to God, not by coming up with some clever way to beat the devil. Instead, we're told to draw our minds and our hearts close to God, and then we're given the promise, and the devil will flee from you, James 4, 7. Now, we're told that we are in a real spiritual battle between the forces of Satan, as it were, and the kingdom of light. We're even told to dress daily in the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. But if you've ever studied that subject carefully, at least in that text, where Paul talks about all the different pieces of our armor, he tells us to get all dressed up and then what? To to kneel down. We get all dressed up in the armor and we kneel down and pray. We depend entirely upon God, Ephesians 6, ending there at verse 18. The truth is, many people in the church pay far too much attention to the wrong power. Kent Hughes, in his wonderful commentary I've appreciated in my research on the gospel by Luke, told the story in his chapter dealing with the text we'll look at in a moment of one Bible study group in an evangelical church that got obsessed with demon possession and spiritual warfare. He wrote that a number of professional couples there in the suburbs had begun this small group. They had several unbelieving friends come to faith in Christ. Marriages and, and families were restored. Their church was infused with new life. But then some of the leadership became overly fascinated with the subject of spiritual bondage, even the transmission of demonic powers through objects, which, by the way, the Bible says nothing of. That's actually animism. That's paganism. They became obsessed with this transmission, and matters got out of hand. 
One night they became convinced that there were demons in the dining room chandelier and ended their Bible study by dismantling the light and burying it in different sections of their city. One morning soon afterwards, some of this group's children were seen running through the neighborhood convinced a demon was after them. Alarmed neighbors came over to check things out and found the women in the Bible study in the backyard hacking a rosewood chest to pieces to dispose of the demons that inhabited the chest. The author went on to summarize, if Satan cannot pull you down with unbelief about him, he will just as happily push you overboard with obsession over him. Where's the balance? Frankly, during the days of Jesus Christ, the world at large was obsessed with the spirit world. They governed their lives by it, just as the world is today. Demonism, occultism, dark magic, idol worship, seances, horoscopes, you name it. All of that is tantamount to connection with demonic power. It was rampant. And in this counter that I want to briefly show you, Jesus Christ will reveal the tragedy of an unbeliever controlled by demonic forces. And at the same time, he will show us his power to dispel literally thousands of demons with one word. And and that encounter, and what I want us to leave with, is nothing more than maybe a few things we'll learn, but effectively this encouragement for every believer, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in what? The world. First John 4, 4. Luke records this event that I want to show you in chapter 8. So turn there. Luke chapter 8. And in verse 26, we're told that Jesus and his disciples sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, to set the context geographically, Mark's gospel, in fact, confirms that this took place in a region known as the Decapolis, so named simply for ten Greek city-states that had been settled after the conquest of Alexander the Great. Verse 27, And when he came out onto the land... He was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. Now, Matthew's gospel also records this event. In fact, he tells us there were two men who came running up to accost them. Both Mark's gospel account and Luke's gospel account focuses on only one of these men. We're not told why. Perhaps it was because he was the most demonized Or maybe it was because he was the one who would end up becoming a disciple of Christ. And I think I'd throw my hat in the ring on that particular suggestion. So Luke is going to just focus on this one man. And he tells us in in a very brief, blunt uh, statement that he was possessed with demons. What does that mean? Well, a simple definition of, of demonic possession... You could call it demonization, more correctly. is when an unbeliever comes under the mastery of a demonic spirit being. Their thinking is under that demonic control. Their emotions respond to demonic influences or impulses. Their body is 
energized, even uniquely empowered by demonic power, and their will is dominated by demonic will and purpose. The person literally becomes a counterfeit temple of the unholy God of this world, Satan is called. And the result, as I'm sure you already know, is never positive. It's always destructive. Now, while a Christian can become obsessed with demonic power, they cannot be possessed, as it were, since they are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16. But unbelievers are open to serve, as it were, as demonic temples. And the result is always destruction and, if not redemption, death. Now, we're never told in Scripture why any particular person becomes controlled like this or how, how it happens. We're certainly not given a special commission or some kind of incantation or a toolkit with special water and superstitious formulas to release. We have been given, however, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is, by its very definition, the redeeming, liberating power of God, Romans 1.16. Paul wrote to the believers living in Rome, many of them coming out of demon worship. And he said to them, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You don't have to be afraid of that. You have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Romans eight, fifteen. Now let me make some observations about this demonized man. First of all, he was demented. Luke informs us here in verse 27 that this man had not put on uh, any clothing for a long time. What many might have considered just to be a a case of um, mental imbalance, and this man had certainly reached a point of mental imbalance, but the root of it was demonization. And the demonization led this man to violate all forms of sensibility and live a perverse, unholy lifestyle, literally running around naked. Mark's gospel adds in his rendering of this account that he cut himself with stones. He literally modeled the false prophets of Baal in their desire to gain the attention of their demon god. you remember in 1 Kings 18? And they did so by cutting themselves and crying out for hours. This may very well have been this man's own fanatical, perverse, self-destructing attempt to gain the favor of those demons whom he may very well have at least at one point in time worshipped. So he had arrived at this point where we could say he was, he was obviously demented. Secondly, he was destitute. Luke adds, look at verse 27, he was not living in a house, he was living in, in the tombs. The cemeteries in these days were commonly areas where, where tombs were carved into, into hillsides, making cave-like mausoleums. The mausoleums of, of wealthy families 
would have included more than one chamber for later family members to be buried in. And, and these empty chambers would have made excellent, available shelter. And in one of them, evidently, this man was living, which would have made funerals in this region really interesting. I mean, you could only hope you got in and out of there before the madman of Gadara broke everything up and ruined the procession. And, of course, terrifying. That's because this man was not only demented and destitute, he was, he was dangerous. Look at verse 29, the middle part. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilderness. Now Mark's gospel adds that people actually attempted on a number of occasions to kind of gang up on him and tie him down and, or chain him down, but no rope or chain could hold him. Just as the Holy Spirit had empowered uh, Samson to perform these amazing physical exploits, so also Satan is allowed to delegate physical strength to his subjects as he counterfeits the power of God. So this man is doing amazing physical exploits. So what you've got basically is a tragic mess here. A man's life is wasting away. Without a job or a family, he's literally moved into one of these mausoleum chambers. He's more than likely surviving by robbing travelers from nearby or even funeral mourners who unsuspectingly came into the cemetery. He had become a living legend. Everybody in the region knew him. He was every child's nightmare. He was every parent's fear. He was a madman. And now he sees Jesus and his disciples rowing ashore. And he comes racing down the hill toward them, assuming they will be his next victim. But as he's, as he's running toward them, and I can imagine Peter and the other guys jumping back in the boat. I mean, who wouldn't? Here's this naked, crazy man running down the hillside. He's lacerated. He's demented. He suddenly recognizes by demonic intuition that one of those men happens to be the Son of God. Verse 28, look there. And seeing Jesus, that is, recognizing Jesus, he cried out, And fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, we've made some observations about this demonized man. Let me make some observations about demons. First of all, they believe in the incarnation of God in Jesus. They knew when it happened, by the way. They had heard to their utter horror and certain doom the angels chanting in the sky to the shepherds below, today in the city of David is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2.10. And unlike the apostates of our day, they believed it. They actually believed it. God had come in the form of His Son. Secondly, the demons believed 
in the deity of Jesus. Notice here this man, the demons and the impulse of them falls down before Jesus at his feet and calls him the son of the most high God. He isn't just another prophet or a teacher. Jesus is the son of the most high God. Thirdly, demons do not know the details of the future. Look at what they say to him. I beg you, do not torment me. Matthew's gospel adds the uh, helpful phrase, do not torment me before the appointed time. Matthew 8, 29. So according to Matthew's gospel, if you combine it with this one, the demons did not exactly know why Jesus had rowed ashore. But they quickly assumed that Jesus must be planning to judge them ahead of time. That is before the final judgment recorded in Revelation chapter 20. So while they recognized the person of Jesus, they had no idea about the immediate plans of Jesus. They didn't not only not know the the distant future apart from what they did know through the revelation of Scripture, they didn't know the immediate future. They didn't know what Jesus was intending. Look down at verse 31. They begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Don't send us into the abyss. Abusas. Literally means without a bottom. It's a place where some demons are even now incarcerated to await their final sentencing, according to Jude, verse 6. It's the place where Satan and his demons will be held for 1,000 years, during which time Christ and his redeemed will reign on earth in that millennial kingdom, Revelation 20. So these, these demons here in Luke's account are terrified that they're going to be sent to the abyss early, which indicates they have not one shred of doubt or denial that that place exists. They're not sitting around debating whether or not hell is real. They're not writing books on the fact that there is no such thing. They're not doubting their coming doom. They believe what God's word has revealed about their future and their future punishment. They're not debating it. In fact, they're saying to Jesus here, please don't send us there early. And here's another observation then that we can make. The demonic world is terrified of their coming torment in hell. Listen, the idea that unbelievers, you know, sometimes in their bravado, they'll talk about going down there to join the party. Nobody's living it up down there. There's no party. Furthermore, the idea that demons run the hell like some haunted hotel you know, to terrorize and to inflict punishment and torture on humans is also unbiblical. Demons and Satan are going to suffer their own judgment from God. They'll have no ability to inflict punishment on others. That's because all the inhabitants of hell will be suffering forever, not from each other, but from the unfolding, everlasting wrath of God. As terrifying as it sounds, hell will be managed not by Satan and his demons, but by our eternal, righteous, sovereign, omnipresent God. God will be managing hell forever. And there's no party down there. 
And Satan and the demons don't get off lightly to inflict their little terrors on people. For this reason, we can then understand that even the demons hate hell. They hate the thought of it. But they so hate God even more that they do everything they can to even compound their coming judgment. Let me make another observation from this text. Demons obviously believe in the power of prayer. Did you notice verse 31? They implore, they plead with Jesus to answer their petition. The imperfect tense of the verb here to implore indicates that they are pleading over and over and over and over again. I hate to say it, but they're setting quite an example. Would that we would believe that Jesus would answer our petitions and be as persistent, truly believing he can answer them. So they're pleading over and over and over again. So what do we have so far? First, demons believe in the incarnation of God in Jesus. Second, demons believe in the deity of Jesus. Third, demons do not know the details of the future unless they're revealed in Scripture. Fourth, demons believe in what is revealed in biblical prophecy. Fifth, the demonic world is terrified of their coming torment in hell. And sixth, the demons believe in the power of persistent petitioning. We would use the phrase, of course, prayer because we have a relationship with them. Let me give you another one, number seven. Demons are powerless before the person of Jesus Christ. They're powerless. You need to get this scene straight in in your mind. The demons are not attacking Jesus here. Jesus is attacking them. He's not on the defensive. He isn't trembling on the seashore. I bet the disciples are. They're probably swimming back across the lake right now. Jesus is as composed in the presence of these demons as he was in the presence of Satan himself. And one word, when he finally utters it, will command them to depart. Before he does, he asks a question. Here's the question of the week. Verse 30. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? Most evangelical scholars believe that Jesus was addressing this man, not the demon. He wouldn't have been interested in having a conversation with the demons. We're not told why the Lord asked this question, but it is a powerful question. And um, perhaps the Lord is asking this man this question, not because he doesn't know the man's name. Of course he, he knows as omniscient Lord. Perhaps he's drawing his disciples' attention as he's training them. And this man's attention, by the way, which he's long since forgotten. That although he is tragically subjugated by demons, he is still a person. He still has a name. He still has an eternal soul. 
and he is not beyond redemption. As someone said, there is no pit where God is not deeper still. But the man is not given an opportunity to answer. As Luke reveals in verse 30, some demonic spokesman answers instead through him and says, our name is Legion. That's a chilling answer. A Roman legion was a regiment of more than 5,000 soldiers, as many, if you counted the staff and the support, 6,000 in a legion. Now, the demon is not giving a proper name to Jesus. He's simply allowing us to understand that, that thousands of demons mysteriously controlled this man's body, mind, and heart. He is literally deluged with demonic beings. Let me make another observation. Demons can do nothing without the permission and will of Christ. Look at verse 32. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and The demons begged him to permit them to enter the swine. He gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down that steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now Mark's gospel is helpful here because it informs us that there were 2,000 pigs in this herd. 2,000 pigs. I just can't resist saying that's a lot of bacon. (laughs) And I'm saying that rather tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also suggesting why Jesus might allow these demons to effectively destroy 2,000 pigs. This was a Gentile region, we know. Scholars believe that They were effectively running a black market for not-so-faithful Jews. Other Bible teachers believe that the farmers were Jews, we're not told. They weren't eating the pork, but they were running a booming business, providing it for the Gentiles. Either way, you you have rebellion against God basically exposed in the man's release. These pigs, of course, were so traumatized by their sudden possession, they took off running and literally ran down the embankment and drowned in the sea. And by the way, in that now, you have demons who are disembodied after all. Some believe, some evangelical scholars believe that this is an act of judgment, and I would agree. The fact that they ran into the sea was the plan of Christ all along. He's judging this black market. He's judging unfaithful Jews. And now these disembodied demons are sent to the abyss after the pigs perished after all. So in one fell swoop, Jesus states his authority over everybody and everything. And he judges as well as a holy God. Now notice verse 34. Now when the herdsmen saw what had happened. They ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus. That's code, by the way, for he's now a disciple of Jesus. He's not only free of demons, he's freed for all of eternity. 
Notice, and they, the people, become frightened. That's a twist. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. Now notice this. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to save them. Is that what it says? They asked him to leave them. They should have asked him to save them. Asked him to leave them. You believe this. For they were gripped with great fear. Why? Well, they're immediately aware, for one thing, that Jesus has power over the demonic world. Maybe he has power over them, too. They're also aware that Jesus has come into their region unannounced and it's now cost them financially. Maybe he will cost them more. I mean, this has been an expensive miracle. Maybe it'll cost more. And I couldn't help but think today, if this happened today, Peter would have brought a lawsuit on behalf of the city against (laughs) Jesus. He knowingly and indirectly caused the death of 2,000 pigs. Now, while I would agree that animals should be treated humanely, even animals raised to be eaten, death should be as painless and quick as possible. And it was definitely quick for this herd. But I disagree, disagree, and find an interesting point in what Jesus did. And here's the point. One man's life is more valuable than 2,000 pigs. There I said it. Sue me. Let me think about it. One man's life is more valuable than 2,000 pigs. Isn't that a startling point to make in our culture today? This redemption story not only exposes their rejection of Christ as their Lord, it not only exposes their, their rebellion against the Mosaic laws of the Old Covenant they're still under, But perhaps more tragically than anything, this encounter exposes this region's satanic value system, which they have embraced. Instead of rejoicing, oh, this guy is saved. No, we want our pigs back. The satanic agenda places no value on human life. None. Certainly no intrinsic value over and above the value of an animal. That's why it's illegal in our country today to crush the egg of an unborn eaglet and perfectly legal to crush the life of an unborn child. See, that's Satan's value system where everything is turned upside down. You think, doesn't this city see it? Well, then Nars see it. Here they have a They have a a visual demonstration of the power of Christ. A man they used to fear, avoid. They couldn't control. His life is wasted. Can't they see it? The madman of Gadara has been redeemed. The text tells us that he's sitting there clothed. Evidently, the disciples 
loaned him some of their clothes. <laughs> He's talking, maybe even laughing for the first time in years with Jesus, under his own control for the first time in a long time. But never mind that. These people want Jesus out of there. And they really would have rather had their pigs. A century ago, an anonymous poet wrote rather vividly of this region's tragic perspective. It reads, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not thine. Thou lovest men, we love swine. Get thee hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole since we have lost our swine? And Christ went sadly. He had wrought for them a sign of love and hope and tenderness divine. Well, but if your gold or swine the entrance blocks, he forces no one's hold. He will depart and leave you to the pleasures of your heart. It struck me as I studied this text that these townspeople might not have been running around naked living in the cemetery, but they were just as much in the grip of Satan's deceptive power as that man had been. And the tragedy is while he is freed, they remain enslaved. Look at verse 38. And we're done. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. Let me be, you know, number 13 here on your list of disciples. But Jesus sent him away, saying, verse 39, return to your house, literally, no, you go home and describe what great things God has done for you. I love this. Give me three minutes. This is nothing less than a commissioning ceremony of one of Christ's newest Gentile ambassadors. I mean, here's this lingering demonstration of grace, by the way. No one descends so deeply into sin that Jesus Christ cannot deliver him. Jesus can do his best in the life of someone even after Satan's done his worst. Maybe that's your story. Satan's done his worst. But then Jesus freed you. He can do in and through you his best. Can you imagine if Jesus had told his disciples, listen, I want to pull ashore here near this cemetery on a hill. I've got someone I want to commission as my missionary to deliver the gospel to these ten Gentile cities. I have an ambassador to commission. And all of a sudden, there comes this naked man screaming and running down the hillside toward them. Can you imagine Jesus saying, well, here he comes. <laughs> 
And there he is right now. Hey, oh my. I love it when the Lord just sort of breaks every, every different protocol we might imagine. Jesus didn't row over, by the way, to this Gentile region because he wanted to start a campaign. He didn't go over there to remind the demons that he had ultimate authority over them. They already knew that. Now, he rode over there to win this one man to faith and commission him to become a missionary evangelist who would end up preaching, we're told, the word used, preaching the gospel throughout these ten city states. A man who had once been the temple of demonic power now becomes the temple of the living God. And his voice, which had for years terrified that region with his screaming and his despair and his blasphemy and his demonic worship, now preaches the gospel of grace and truth and deliverance and freedom. And just as Jesus told that man, you go begin at home. So we also have been given that message. Begin at home, then reach your region, and then your nation, and then your world for the glory of the Son of the Most High God who reached down into our pit and rescued us and set our feet on a solid rock. So let's go deliver that kind of news to our world. 